Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. The ancient sages said, Do not despise the snake for having no horns, for who is to say it would not become a dragon? So may three just men, Taylor Parks, Neil Kulkarnet, and me, Al Needham, become an army, a pop-crazed army, an army which is currently laying waste to the episode of Top of the Pops, dated March the 19th, 1981. Hey! up you pop craze youngsters and welcome to part three of episode 71 of chart music no more fannying about charge Singers Colin Blundstone to go with Dave Stewart and what becomes of the broken hearted. Excellent. Well, you better, you bet, it's a number nine. And here on Tour the Pops, the Who. Surrounded by four ladies with voluminous amounts of hair and one lad with his jumper tucked into his jeans tells us that Colin Blunstone is one of Britain's best singers before fucking up the intro to the next single, which is You Better You Bet by The Who. I think Powell was going for something like You Better You Bet we got the number nine single next. It's... Mm. Yeah. But he didn't. No, he pulled out of it. Uh. Formed in London in 1964 from the ashes of the detours, the who are the fucking who. <laughs> the last time the pop craze youngsters chanced upon the band as part of their Thursday evening pop treat was in August of 1978, when the video of Who Are You was aired, and since then, much has happened. A month after that, Keith Moon was found dead in his flat, leading Pete Townsend to almost immediately rush out a statement that the band would continue, and they eventually got in Kenny Jones, formerly of the Small Faces and the Faces. 
They spent 1979 continuing to draw a line under their career up till then, working on the retrospective film The Kids Are Alright and the corresponding soundtrack slash compilation LP, working on the film Quadrophenia and returning to the stage at the Rainbow before playing a tour of France, Scotland, a gig at Wembley Stadium and one at the Zeppelin Felt at Nuremberg. After a five-night stint at Madison Square Garden, they returned to the UK for four dates in Brighton and Stafford before embarking on a full-scale tour of America. However, three dates in, 11 people were killed in a pre-gig stampede without the band's knowledge. But they decided to carry on the tour and finish 1979 with a gig at Hammersmith Odeon. The band went on hiatus for the first half of 1980, with Daltrey working on the film McVicar and Townsend finishing off his second solo LP, Empty Glass, but reconvened in July to commence work on their ninth studio LP, Face Dancers, which came out last Monday. And this is the lead-off cut from it. It's the follow-up of sorts to Long Live Rock, the 1972 track which had been available on Odds and Sods since 1974, but was put out in 1979 to accompany the release of The Kids Are Alright, and it got to number 48 in May of that year. This single was released three weeks ago, and it immediately entered the charts at number 35, leading to an invite on top of the pops, which helped it soar 19 places to number 16. And this week, it's jumped seven places to number nine. So here's a repeat of their appearance from a fortnight ago. They're first in the top of the pop studio since they did 5.15 in October of 1973 chaps that Wembley gig I mentioned earlier it sounds extremely heavy manners 80,000 people jammed into Wembley in the middle of August and someone thought it was a good idea to sell gallon jugs of scrumpy at £4 each which (laughs) rendered punters legless and puking the ring after half a pint and resulting in brawls between old rockers and younger mods who had seen Quadrophenia the night before and were well dischuffed that the support act was ACDC and not the Lambrettas, right. followed by the discovery that there were no tubes running afterwards. Great times. <laughs> <laughs> the same happened when they played Charlton Football Ground in 1974. Yes. It pissed down with rain and basically like you thought there'd been some fights there when there was a football match on. You should have seen mm. the Who concert by all accounts. But yeah, being the mod lion that I was at the time, you know, I always had at least one Who badge as part of my clanking in, mm. even though I actually didn't own any of their records. I mean, I bought Rough Boys by Pete Townsend the previous year, so you can imagine my anticipation of seeing the Who <laughs> on top of the pops, can't you? <laughs> because this was the thing, it was, that, right, they're mods, they're a mod band, why are they acting like grebs? I remember seeing in Smash Hits the lyrics for Long Live Rock in 1979 and thinking, hang on a minute, what's this bollocks? Yeah. It is weird because there's a nationwide piece about The Who playing The Rainbow in 1979. And you can see loads of using Parkers queuing up outside The Rainbow, including one twat who's written Tamla Maltown with a W (laughs) on the back of his Parker. (laughs) Not for nothing do they call Detroit the Flymo City. (laughs) You're supposed to be mods and here you are not being mods. What's going on here? So, yeah, a very confused young lad I was. This period of The Who is... It's a bit unsettling, it has to be said. Mm. Um, they've 
gone all in on uh, a specifically Aventers, specifically early middle-aged male aesthetic, which burnt out very fast. But it's very distinctive when you see it. Mm. Nicholas Ball as Hazel, Paul McCartney's Rockestra, I Won't Let You Down by PhD, uh, the video Ooh. to Street Cafe by John Lodge. Right. Jeans, white trainers, bomber jackets, all scruffy but expensive. It's mm. the first attempt by white British rock and rollers to age without complete surrender. But mm. there wasn't yet a template of what to do and what not to do. They were just winging it. So yeah. you mm. end up, you got a little dash of the new fashions here and there, like Pete Townsend's eye makeup and, mm. you know. But Townsend is in yet another midlife crisis here, drinking too much, doing coke, getting chucked out of nightclubs, in between worshipping his Eastern guru and lecturing everyone about yeah. the healing and unifying mm. powers of rock. Oh, and having an affair with a woman young enough to be his daughter while still trying to hang on to his family and trying not to be in the who while forcing himself to stay in the who and Mm. what makes this simultaneously more interesting and more annoying is that all of this went into the music and that's precisely what this song is about lyrically and spiritually it's about that affair he was having and Mm. all that self-doubt and self-loathing funneled as usual through an uncomprehending roger daltrey with (laughs) with televangelist hair thinking that a brand new scarf tied around the neck with a big rupert bear knot under 100 degree studio lights. he looks like the most violent rupert the bear there's ever been (laughs) yeah you want to come and join in all of my fucking games you slag (laughs) i'm the fucking hardest man in nutwood (laughs) yeah it's a little bit of country squire little Mm. bit of tennis pro Mm. bit of urban professional but hey this rebel ain't wearing no tie Mm. yeah um But this depressing stuff is also what I kind of like about this silly and objectively not good record. Mm. I'm quite intrigued by the purity of expression of that very specific mood and style and mental state, because it's unusual in rock music. This is about people reaching an age where their rock and roll preoccupations and addictions now seem incongruous and anachronistic but they can't shake them and Mm. they haven't yet developed a new vocabulary or style to carry those things with them into middle age so Mm. the album that this single is from face dances is the worst who album by some distance because it's all like this yeah late 30 something self-loathing very self-conscious loads of goofy lyrics about nothing and Mm. all these bitty songs like this one where pete and this happened all the times he got older where pete just doesn't have faith in any of his riffs or melodies to carry the whole song so he makes the songs in the sequences of bits yeah jammed yeah. together mm-hmm. like a mini suite like simon reynolds once said he's like a, a weird hybrid of pub rock and prog rock um right. and they never flow you're trying to follow the song but that's mm. pop rock <laughs> <laughs> which sounds fascinating you know they, they spit at the camera and then write the lyrics out <laughs> But so none of these songs flow. 
you're trying to follow the song but it just keeps changing direction like a runaway pig you know yeah and mm. even speaking to someone who can enjoy crap music when it's interesting in other ways i can't listen to that album and mm. neither should you but yeah. I can take this song because it crushes all that stuff into one stupid pop single, which is all you need of it. And yeah. in its brevity and its weird bubbliciousness, it makes that torpor halfway entertaining. Mm. And it gives full-throated rock voice to that unfortunate age of man. The neurotic heading for 40 when 40 was old. Yes. Pathetically obsessed with one's own fading vitality but still young enough that sometimes you can get off the rowing machine and still be able to sing but my body feels so good and mean it <laughs> right there was a lot of that about boomer sunset the fucking lyrics man <laughs> yeah well let's return yeah. to the review in this week's enemy of face dancers because it's been absolutely slagged right across the board but <laughs> Here Gavin Martin says, In the mental asylum that is rock and roll, the who of a room with no view, drained by the darkness of experience, bent arthritically by the weight of their own myth. Townsend is a battered elder statesman offering a set of mouldy memories, vague, pig-headed, unproductive and dogmatic. The Who stand in only one dimension, which is that of their own selfish and worthless world. Townsend's problems and struggles have no real death because they are cocooned in his own mythology. He's pulling the worst con of the lot, that of a suffering, sensitive artist. Apart from failing to cut it in the immediate areas, social, moral and aesthetic, this album is a hell of a shambles musically. Given the dawdling senility of Townsend's songs and the predictably cliched couple of contributions from Entwistle, it's very hard to imagine any sort of cognancy or tension being mustered by the group. Adultery sings with all the conviction of a man who is wondering where his next film contract is coming from, and it is only fitting that he should often sound like a Cockney pub artist parodying himself. Harsh. Well, no, not harsh at all. He was good, the young Gavin Mark. And that's that's good. Yeah, good trying to make a name right. for himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. thing is, though, I mean, perhaps the the best thing to come out of this period of the Who might be this top of the pops performance. They are old pros, and they know how to do top of the pops. And yes, Townsend's got this weird double-breasted leather jerkin. On. Yeah, he's trying to live in the moment, isn't he? But it's, it's a bit kind of like futurist jumpsuit. He looks like a bellboy to me. But I think I think Entwistle is perhaps the oddest looking. Yes, you know that episode of Dad's Army where Jones, Godfrey, and Fraser go around Fraser's and get embalmed <laughs> to look younger. <laughs> 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 That's kind of like what Entwistle looks like. I was really offended by his flying V bass. Uh, that, that was just wrong. Man. A flying V needs to be brandished and, mm. and flung about not not just picked at <laughs> you know what i mean but he likes tapping and all of that stuff he you know he's a bass soloist it's like having a fucking harley davidson and just walking up the street pushing it along <laughs> not right mate hey you slagging off thunder fingers <laughs> <laughs> the thing is like it does seem by the time we find them here on this episode of top of the pops anyway you know i mean townsend since about 71 
for me, just seems to be someone enormously embittered yeah. about pretty much everything about rock as well. He's constantly mm. singing and writing about how rock and roll is stopping him becoming a functioning adult. And, and mm. the lyrics here are just this half-pissed, let-me-in doggerel yeah. that's pretty appalling. I mean, why is he listening to old T-Rex? That really struck me as an yeah. odd line. Yeah, him and B.A. Robertson. Indeed. And, <laughs> and there's a- but, but also, who's next? Yeah. Like, name-checking your own fucking album. That, that is a great way to kick on. Who? Yeah, like Pete Townsend in 1981, he's thinking, I haven't heard Barbara O'Reilly often <laughs> enough. Mm. <laughs> but there's also, isn't there that line, you welcome me with open arms and open legs? I mean, come on. Yeah. Oh, it's no. Kind of Gross. Yeah, acted by Daltrey as well. He goes, You woke up me with open arms and open legs. <laughs> yeah. The McVicar himself. <sighs> the song and the lyric just seems to revel in that kind of arrested development thing that he's been moaning about a while. But mm. it's revealing, revealing of a kind of squalor, obviously, in Townsend's life at the time. A squalor that extends into the way Daltrey snarls you better with that kind of punky. You better! Yeah. It's definitely a kind of, not a nod to the pistols or anything, but he's definitely aiming for that. But as with everything by The Who, uh, I, you know, there are certain things I can't eat, right? Not <laughs> right. just because I don't like them, but because I've had a slightly traumatic sensory memory of them that just creates this kind of instant gag reflex. Such uh, as? Kind of, eggs, right? I can't eat eggs. Oh. And, and people are appalled at this. and like, you God, you're missing out. <laughs> That's also how I am about listening to The Who. Right. Um, <laughs> who, the Who are eggs to me. They're, they're, just, they're just rank. What kind of eggs? Just the, the, any kind of eggs, Al. I mean, you know. Now map out The Who's career by egg. <laughs> by egg. Come well, on. Well, they, All right, can't explain well, to my generation. an exciting sizzling fried egg at that. But no, but I wanted to... Co- yeah, okay, good, good, good. Um, sell out. By the Who seller, you know, we're we're talking scrambled, I would say. Right. Tommy. Yeah. Now here we're getting poached. (laughs) Right. Okay. Um, uh, Who are you? Yeah. It's hard boiled shit from then on, isn't it? It's Mm. it's pretty horrible. I mean, look, 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 don't get me wrong. I think all of us here had that little moment in our listening life when we were sent back. You know, we had to go back because the present was so horrific. And mm. my period of my life when I was doing that was entirely conducted under sort of three different auspices, really. One was The Melody Maker. The other one was that 100 Greatest Albums book by Paul Gambaccini. And the other mm. was Formula 30. Now, Formula 30 had two Who tracks on it. Ooh. And one was Substitute, right? And it amazed me. I thought it was astonishing. Yeah. Not only that here was this really combustible sounding band, but also that the lyrics, they, they seem to have a really true class consciousness mm. that no other band of that period, perhaps this side of the Kinks, possessed. And, yeah. and, and even with the Kinks, as a young listener, there was a kind of class slipperiness to them. So mm. that even if the sound was quite near to punk, the lyrics were a bit more diffuse than that. Davis would sing about dead-end streets, but it also sing about mansions and poshery, you know, whereas yeah. Substitute seemed to be something authentically angry from an underdog. And Substitute mm. pushed me towards the other Who singles from that time. You know, I can't explain yes. anyway, anyhow, anywhere, my generation, and I can see for miles. And, mm. and I already started having feelings hearing those songs as a kid. That man, if they'd have come out with those 
and then I don't know died in a van crash or something that would have been perfect they mm. were as interesting to me as the creation or John's Children or Misunderstood or any of those yeah. those sort of bands yeah. those singles that, that run of singles is one of the greatest runs of singles in the 60s they're properly unique they seem completely disinterested in making friends or becoming stars really or appealing they still feel like things that had to come out of their system and crucially even in those early records you can detect that this is less a band than four massive egos straining against each other and there's this faint hint of mutual hatred there which is really exciting mm. especially when combined with the people behind them you know Andrew Lou Goldham is more interesting than Brian Epstein and Peter Meesden and yeah. Kit Lambert and people like that are even more interesting than Andrew Lou, Lou Goldham yes. you know there seemed to be a genuine commitment then to pop art in what they did that rub between the rhythm section, the singer who just seemed to want to be famous, really, and this guitarist who seemed to be in constant torment. It seemed really interesting. But then, you know, you watch Monterey pop and you see Hendrix kill them. Yes. And, you know, the other song on Formula 30 was Pinball Wizard, right? And mm. that's clearly a later band. Yeah. Unfortunately, feeling a bit more like Townsend's Baby and feeling a little sort of less chaotic, more like a band. Mm. And like a twat, you know, I got out Tommy of the lo- at the library. Oof. And, you know, it was one of those moments about halfway through that album where I thought, you know, stop, you've gone too far. <laughs> Roll <laughs> yeah. that back a little. Ponderous, yeah. ugly music made by ponderous, ugly people. Can I just stick up for the Who at Monterey, by the way? The, right, okay. Their penny pit, their, their fascinating but penny pinching managers had uh, yeah. just paid for their tickets. So all their guitars and amps, they had to hire in America. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't sound like they normally did. Whereas the more streetwise Charles Chandler had made sure Hendrix mm. took a, a then brand new Marshall stack and his own strat with him, uh, which is why Hendrix sounds twice as good at Monterey. The thing is, by the time I'd heard Tommy, I'd also seen what I still contend is the the most horrific image in pop and that's mm. roger daltrey in those beans <laughs> and even knowing that you know he nearly copped a dose of pneumonia from that photo shoot was sort of scant consolation really yeah substitute was my in point as well neil because it got re-released and he got in the charts in about 1976 yeah yeah so yeah that was the who to me for a long time and then when i became a mod yeah i heard all the early stuff so like, oh fucking hell this is amazing and i go all the way up to sell out i can't go any further so soon as the fringes and the perms appear yeah that's me out to me they're a definitive singles band that perhaps should have stayed mm. as a singles band but i mean you know they're one of those bands who i'm pushed towards you know my entry points quite often and i just can never do it the look of daltrey is a big part of this i, I am it just revolts me you know daltrey and those beans yeah right it was less grim mm. when i thought that the item in the foreground was a sausage <laughs> <laughs> like you know you get beans and they got a sausage in i yeah, thought yeah. that's what it was meant to be then when i realized it was his leg it, it was much worse. <laughs> you thought it was a savory 99 yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but you know I, I ended up watching the tommy film and like all ken russell films that you see in childhood it kind of freaks you out with the intensity mm. of it but it was just repellent and to be honest i've never really been able to get over that I mean, I really wasn't blown away as promised by Live at Leeds and, and Who's Next was an album where, you know, reading about Townsend's initial concept 
I mean, that concept for Lifehouse, yeah. was it? His project yeah. that he had. You know, I found that concept much more exciting, if bizarre, than its truncated kind of realisation. This idea he had of the grid, you know, and he'd, he'd sort of like get biometric data about mm. all the audience members and then feed <laughs> into this kind of communal musical moment. Yeah. I mean, there's moments of excitement, don't get me wrong, even in the later stuff. So it won't get fooled again. That big scream is, is ace, but it's done better by Iron Maiden on Number of the Beast. <laughs> so I was like... Yeah. You know so, the worst thing about Lifehouse, by the way, mm. when they were first starting like preliminary work on that, they did some gigs at the Young Vic in London right. to try and work on this idea that Townsend had of like creating a, an amazing transcendent connection between the audience and the band, and yeah. you know, to the point where you could hit a certain chord and the audience would disappear. You know, mm. um, right. and what actually happened was. Um, it, it just degenerated into the Who doing a version of Boney Maroney while some skinheads <laughs> kicked each other's heads in. It, it, it didn't go well. It was a little bad omen straight away. But this performance, this isn't the Who that anyone wants, is it? <laughs> the older elements of uh, the Top of the Pops audience are, are, are going to want to see Daltrey just swinging his mic around and people of my age want Ready, Steady, Go all over again. But we get neither. Yeah. Well, the 60s Who would have made much more of the chorus. And like Taylor says, there's these big blustery sort of bollocky bits in between. The, the chorus is the point mm. of this song. So the big blustery bits. It's a long-winded getting to that chorus, put it that way. Yeah. To me, the only good thing they do post-1967 is, is Roger Daltrey's horrific death by botched tracheotomy in shite 78 horror film The Legacy. That's a marvellous, <laughs> marvellous moment. But I perhaps have taken a dislike to The Who, which is unfair. I mean, there's loads of 70s rockers who did morally far more appalling mm. things who did, you know, but their sound is seductive, so I don't care. I, I find The Who rarely seductive like that. They were very blustery mm. to me. And that's even before we get into the individual members. I just don't like any of them, you know what I mean? Keith Moon, selfish prick. John Intwistle, nasty prick. Pete Townsend, balls-achingly earnest prick. And Roger Daltrey, king Brexit prick. (laughs) You know, I don't like his liking of Enoch. I don't like his quote about Hitler. Which was? Oh, well, he said uh, at some point in the mid-70s, I think, he said, you need someone who's going to make people jump. You need a Hitler figure to just say, this is what it is. And then he goes on to say, and Hitler was right for Germany at the time. They were being really being shit on. He turned out mad in the end. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But when he started, he was there. He just did marvelous things for the German people. You just need a Hitler figure internationally for kids. Hmm. One other thing. It wasn't the thing that bonded me and my missus, but we both were repulsed by Roger Daltrey. I will never, ever forget (laughs) one night when I suggested to her a dream that I wanted her to have because I wanted to see how terrifying it could be. The dream is this, because uh, my, my wife, like a lot of girls who grew up in the 1970s, was m- massively fancied Robert Powell as Jesus right. Christ, you know? Um, so I suggested this dream to her that she's following Jesus up a biblical hill, you know? So, and she's following him up, and she thinks it's Robert Powell, you know? And she gets to the top of the hill following Jesus, and she touches the sort of hem of his garment or his shoulder, and he turns around, and instead of the beautiful blue eyes of, of, of Powell Jesus, it's Daltrey Jesus. Oh, Daltrey Jesus. And, yeah, wow. yeah. And just even coming out with that makes me shiver. <laughs> because 
He's just vile. So yeah, I. I, I she was expecting this hollow-cheeked purity, and she got what looked like a hard Phil Neville. Yeah, but I mean, I do want to stress when the Who are exciting, they're tremendously mm. exciting. Um, but I just think that that didn't last long enough for me. I mean, that performance of them doing any way, anyhow, anywhere on Ready, Steady, Go is fucking astonishing. Yeah, yeah one of yeah. the f- high points of post-war British culture. Mm. And so it always offends me when I see it on YouTube and there's some comment underneath berating the Ready Fusion cameramen and directors for shaking the camera about during the uh, <laughs> during the drum solo. Yeah. It's fucking offensive, man. That's the best bit. Yeah. There's some American twat who wants to see how fucking Keith Moon's doing the paradiddles. Fuck off. <laughs> if you ever see that on YouTube, Pop Crazy Youngster, did you have a fucking word with him? I mean, it's a really exciting performance, that. And also, you know, mm. I, I've got to say, just to, from a m- music journalist geek angle, reading Nick Conn on The Who... Mm. he's amazing on the who he's yeah, really yeah, yeah. thrilling about that band and and that was a big part of my sort of really getting into that early stuff yeah hence the disappointment later you know one of those bands like the pet shop boys like zappa where i'm more than willing to read about them because an awful lot of people have written good stuff about them and acknowledge the importance the legacy the lineage or something mm. but i have next to no interest in listening to them sort of post 67 really yeah yeah the thing about daltry irrespective of his rock horse face (laughs) his main musical problem is that he's always had a great natural voice in terms Mm. of power and attack regardless of what you think of the sound of it but he's very often used it in ways which don't do him any favors he never really knew what was good for him so you hear him on this record trying to interpret these smashed up garbled lyrics just in any way he can which Mm. for him means bombastic shouting with occasional real speech inflections broadway style Mm. but it all feels daft because he doesn't know what townsend's on about um they didn't communicate well enough for townsend to explain it to him so He's just putting the inflections on random words, you know. Or Mm. to give him a bit more credit, he's timing those inflections for musical and rhythmic variation rather than any internal narrative logic in the lyrics. But that's how we get to this track's insane peak moment which is where he sings i know i've been wearing crazy clothes and i look pretty crappy sometimes (laughs) although tragically that gets lost in this performance because Mm. this is a re-recording or a or more likely a remix with live vocals rather than just miming but it's there on the record and it's the best bit he always had the same problems if you listen to the very early who Daltrey is trying really hard to resist their transition from a London R&B covers band to a new style pop art group, Mm. even though that's what elevated them out of the pack and made them big, Mm. and not just the Yardbirds. Um, And also, despite the fact that he sings those new songs beautifully with exactly the right blend of toughness and sincerity and Mm. vulnerability it's a genuine emotional street voice whereas Mm. on the stuff that he wanted the who to be doing like james brown covers and especially their version of i'm a man by bo diddley which made it onto the first lp his singing is ridiculous it's Mm. so stylized and affected that it's just absurd he's trying to sound like howling wolf it's more like howling cockapoo 
um, <laughs> like beyond Blackthroat to the point where he just sounds like he's doing a funny voice. Mm. Have you ever heard this? Fucking bizarre. But mm. he resisted the move away from that material to the more innovative stuff because mm. accepting that meant ceding control of the band to Townsend, who yep. was a middle-class art student from Ealing, while Daltrey was a rock-hard sheet metal worker from Acton. Mm. And if you're not from London, you might not quite understand the difference between Ealing and Acton. There's a difference. <laughs> um, the fact that the tension between those two things and those two worldviews turned out to be the Who's main feature and mm. selling point and ultimately the point of the band, in the end, that was a curse because yeah. it meant that they then had to preserve the tension between those two men endlessly to keep it going. Yeah. And Daltrey rode that out because he was fundamentally unflappable perhaps uh-huh. a little too thick to be flappable whereas Townsend was a massive neurotic to the point where it almost killed him which is mm. how he ended up like this Pete Townsend writing songs like this one about mm. being a self-loathing middle-aged failure of a human being yeah. um delivered by a bopping daltry yeah uh, as though yeah. with a roar of a lion triumphant in <clears throat> battle um, <laughs> so you get Townsend with his expression of vague contempt and he's got like a trendy haircut that looks shit because he's going thin on top. Mm. And he's still chasing fashions because he still believes in youth, even though he's not young anymore. And he doesn't know what else to do. And he's in the same spiral where he spent most of his adult life. Smashing his guitar to express the frustration of being caught in a showbiz trap. And then realising that the guitar smashing itself has become showbiz and a trap of its own. Mm. So he smashes another to let out that frustration and so on. It's the exact same psychological loop as alcoholism, which he also had. Mm. And at the same time, this is why he became such a key figure. Yeah. especially for critics in the 70s. Yeah. Like his life and career working with Daltrey was the perfect illustration of that tug between art and showbiz or principles and commerce with which rock music discourse was obsessed for 20 years. And because he was the most articulate and verbal and self-analytical of that generation, mm. he was very aware of this conflict and it became an obsession, this perpetual self-flagellation. You know, mm. and so everything he said and did after about 1969, he's like an old dissident endlessly picking over the failed revolution, except mm. from a throne rather than from a prison cell. <laughs> um, and he knows that he sounds pampered and out of touch. He knows that he is. Mm-hmm. And he looks pretty crappy sometimes. <laughs> and he feels guilty about that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we're supposed to care. Mm. And it's awful, really. Like, the perfect Pete Townsend story from this period, which I'm sure everyone knows, is the night that inspired the song Who Are You Mm. when he went out in Soho and bumped into Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols in a club. And he went into a half-hour rant about how they had to save rock and roll from from stagnation and wipe away the useless old cunts like him because Mm. they were young and valid and he's a rotten old drunken has-been who should be burnt up in the fiery cloud of their liftoff. And Jones and Cook just sort of sat there shuffling nervously 
no idea what he was talking about <laughs> and then when he finished they asked him when the who were going to be touring again yes. because the who were their favorite group yes. and townsend screamed went off his nut tried to hit someone and shortly afterwards was ejected from the nightclub oh he might have made a better critic perhaps i mean he might have oh, been yeah. a good writer about music but i mean the thing is these neuroses don't get me wrong a lot of neuroses can be part of rock and roll but it's precisely those neuroses that stop rock happening sometimes mm. the excitement of rock and roll happening at least yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, I find townsend a really interesting figure and when, when i've ever sort of read him talking about music he's very insightful and and he's a smart smart chap but it's precisely that that, that smart which which forestalls the pleasure in their music and and uh, whereas in those 60 in those 60 singles you know you do those those records sound like a fight i mean they, they sound like a fight between four people in a sense there's a togetherness there but mm. there's a tension there yeah, yeah whereas of course by the 70s moon was pretty much um not inept what's the word sort of a fucking nightmare a nightmare in all kinds of ways but mm. but fundamentally not up for a fight as it were he was too busy cherry bombing toilet bowls and stuff yeah. so apart from with his wife well yeah yeah <laughs> but 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 that that crucial dynamic that makes those singles those uh, uh, yeah you can't be stressing the fact that those singles are but that dynamic are gone so it does seem to me when i listen to 70s who the main dynamic is between Daltrey and, and townsend Daltrey mm. is just like taylor says unapologetically and totally and, and i think this isn't even a, a, a he's commercially minded and that is it and i don't even mm. think that's a lacking in him i just think that's what he sees music as yeah yeah and that he doesn't want to go back to working in a sheet metal factory yeah 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 or a trout farm <laughs> <laughs> the way they're being presented on top of the pops it's like here are the great survivors of the 60s who have picked their way through the wreckage of the 70s and here they stand ready to face a new decade but out of all four of them and you'll notice we haven't said one thing about kenny jones because there's absolutely nothing to say about no. it he's just a drummer yeah and that's how he's treated yeah, yeah. but out of all four members of that band only one of them looks anywhere near ready to kick on into a new decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem is, he's got to funnel everything through Daltrey, who just wants to carry on being the rock horse. Mm. It's a curse for Tanda. Because mm. Neil's absolutely right that he was a good rock critic and he considered himself a good rock critic and said so on mm. several occasions. And the curse, and I don't know if you find this, but I certainly do, the curse of having naturally good critical instincts is that you end up turning them on yourself yeah yeah um, and it can paralyze you in some ways yeah it's impossible for me to look back at anything i wrote when i was like you know in my 20s or 30s and not think it's disgusting mm. because i know i could do it better now but that's not healthy right that's not a healthy way of looking at your life that's really only like an inversion of pete townsend who mm. looks back at when he was 20 or 21 and thinks oh i'm shit now and i was great then mm. you know mm. the exact opposite of most people yeah and the terrible thing is that like me he's right and that at 20 or 21 he had the emotion 
and the vision to write songs like The Kids Are All Right, which mm. articulate adolescent feelings in a, in a coherent and insightful way, but are still transmissions from the inside and are still about the moment and are still authentically youthful in that they behave as though the future does not and cannot ever exist. Mm. Mm. Have you ever seen him on that programme, A Whole Scene Going? from 1965 yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like 20 years old and he's obviously on speed and he's sat there twitching and he's taking questions from the audience and it's the greatest interview with a rock star i've ever seen because everything he says is brilliant and perfect it's the one where he says the problem with rock music is when you start trying to introduce quality to it he's going to think about our group we haven't got any quality and it's the audience can't understand him and they're mm. saying things like well why don't you try and put some quality into it yeah and it's mm. like no no you're missing the point it's rock and roll it's not supposed to have quality the quality is somewhere else it's not where you're looking yeah mm. he knew all of this he understood it and he could articulate it so when the future that he was pretending would never exist suddenly did exist he stuck to this grand theme of youthful confusion and he found himself writing about being a confused adolescent, mm. which is not the same thing at all. And he mm. couldn't hack it because he knew it wasn't as good. Like, I like the much maligned Quadrophenia, the album. Right. right. For all its proggy filigree and waffle and all the bits where Roger Daltrey has to deliver Gilbert and Sullivan-like recitations <laughs> because Townsend can't fit all the words into the tune, mm. which doesn't sound lovely, I'll grant you. Um, but I think it's a genuine achievement in that it does express those deep teenage feelings in the best way that you can hope for from a slightly older man, accurately with some distance and wisdom. But it's shot through with self-hatred because he knows this is worse than writing The Kids Are All Right. So you get all this tortured bluster, right? So to me, that album is the high point of the beard and brandy years of mm-hmm. The Who. But fucking hell, right? One of the key songs on that album is The Punk and the Godfather, mm. which is a song he wrote about the relationship between him and his audience. But it's not his actual audience. It's his idealised audience. Mm. It's this imaginary audience who all hate him for what he's become. Mm. So in the song, you've got this scrappy 60s street kid mod who's voiced by Daltrey jimmy from quadrophenia right Mm. addressing pete townsend himself but it's the pete townsend of 1973 as though he's fallen back through a time warp Mm. and it's a really overblown high concept you know pub prog thing and it's the most thorough and unsparing self-immolation you'll ever hear in song Mm. so he has this kid sing to the rock star, you declared you would be three inches taller. You only became what we made you. You thought you were chasing a destiny calling. You only earned what we gave you. Now you're watching movies trying to find the feelers. You only see what we show you. And he's inventing punk three years early, but mm. top down. And it's not even actual punk. It's the music journalist concept of punk. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it did create that discourse because 
it was like a time paradox because a lot of those original punk writers were old who fans who'd grown up listening to this stuff so in the middle section it drops out and you've just got the synth going me 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 and townsend comes in with his wobbly high voice like a 12 year old richard manuel off school with a cold and in audible anguish he sings back to this kid I have lived your future out by pounding stages like a clown and on the dance floor, broken glass and blooded faces slowly pass the empty seats in numbered rows. It all belongs to me, you know, and it's really uncomfortable to listen to because you're listening to a breakdown formed into a song, Mm. but you can see why 70s music writers considered that more interesting than wings. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Paul McCartney also wrote a song about how he imagined the experience of going yes. to one of his own 1970 <laughs> stadium did. gigs. The song Rock Show from 1975. Mm. And the lyrics to that go, Behind the stacks you glimpse an axe, the tension mounts you score an ounce. <laughs> and I wonder Townsend was so fucking lonely and depressed. Oh, yeah. But that's the thing, loneliness. I mean, the thing is, if Townsend, say, had split from the Who in 1970 and become a singer-songwriter, now I don't think he's got the voice for it, to be honest with you. Mm. But what he needs in a band is somebody to enforce a little concision on him and and just to say cheer up mate i know that sounds daft but a balancing mm. ego if you like a balancing ego now what he's doing in the yeah, 70s yeah. townsend he's drowning in his neuroses and who has he got as bandmates he's got yeah. two total hooligans in the rhythm section and he's got somebody who just wants to lamp him as his front man. Yes. So, yes. you know, he, he's, he's not got that person saying, oh, maybe we could cut that. You know what I mean? Composition, mm. yeah, yeah, the who yeah, yeah. seem to be this thing that are constantly almost sickened by Townsend's indulgence, but without that indulgence, there is no band. Yeah, I yeah. can't help but think, Chavs, about the terrible bind that the who and Townsend in particular are in in 1981, because, you know, He's got a solo career on the go, and you get the feeling he'd like to keep it that way for at least a bit. But as we know, The Who have started spunking their money on films. You know, the the budget for Quadrophenia was £2 million, would you believe? So the only way to finance that is either to knock out huge selling albums or um, relentlessly touring the old tunes out. And on this showing, they clearly can't do the former anymore, so it's hello to non-stop Tommy gigs for the rest of the decade. And when you compare them to their peers who are still about, you know, it's obvious that Paul McCartney and the role stones still have the ability to knock out a decent new tune every now and then and mm. will be hanging around through the 80s or you know in the case of led zeppelin accepting that they can't go on without a key component and calling it a day but i'm afraid to say that what we're watching here on top of the pops sounds like a band shouldering the last straw before resigning themselves to being a heritage act <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the Stones have got, what, about two, three more years of making good songs before mm. they disappear into nothing. But at least they managed it, you know? Um, yeah. The Who are not managing that at all. Yeah, well, but the Stones believed in rock and roll, mm. and Paul mm. McCartney believed in, in pop. Yeah. So they could still churn something out. At this point, Pete Townsend is only really able to express himself artistically as this kind of mess of neurosis. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. not going to be commercial, and it's not going to be much like the who you know mm. when he was just windmilling and and having a good time so yeah. yeah he can't do it he can only create things that 
kids aren't interested in now. Mm. It's a slightly, to- I mean, it's maybe not slightly, it's a toxic relationship, but you know how people can mm. get institutionalised to toxic relationships. And, and yeah. adultery can function without the who. You know, he doesn't particularly want to because it's still a moneymaker. Townsend, mm. I don't think, can function without mm. that dynamic. He's so used to it. By that's, the that's funny. I'd assume it was the other way around because no one's going to want to listen to a Roger Daltrey solo LP in 1981. Daltrey will go where the hits are. Daltrey will go mm. where he thinks is commercially viable. Mm. Townsend, I don't think, can let go of the who. Otherwise, why wouldn't mm. he already? Why does he need the who? If it's all this aggravation... Why doesn't mm. he just do a solo album, get some session guys in, go around bloody Ronnie Wood's house or something, and get something recorded? Well, he did. He'll put out all the best cowboys have Chinese eyes a year from now. If he's disgusted with what he's become, which he seems to be disgusted from about 1971 onwards, why does he keep coming back? Why did the Who keep coming back? Mm. I, it, it's an addictive, toxic relationship for him, I think. Yeah. That's precisely what's thrilling about their 60s records. But as the 70s go on, it really does seem like him, Townsend, that is, against the rest of the band, which probably mm. isn't the way it was, but that's the way these records... No, it was. Come, the, oh, right, well, that's <laughs> no. how these records come across. That There is the only creative force in the band, but the rest of the band can't stand him. I mean, the only half-decent... Who record from this period is sung by Townsend, Eminence Front. Oh, yeah, where they tried to have an actual contemporary sound mm. on it as well. Yeah. Like, which doesn't just mean playing a blustery Who song and, and you know, making the drums mm. splash mm. a bit. So it sounds like a modern... I mean, it's constructed like an 80s record. But Daltrey can't do that. No. And wouldn't want to. No, God, certainly not. Because he feels like he's put his flag in the ground. Yeah. And this is what we do, isn't it? This is what people pay to come and see the Who. And he's absolutely right, mm, it yes. is. What we're talking about did at least give us the extraordinary album The Who by Numbers. Have you ever had that? Mm. From the bleak season of 1975. <laughs> and it's like the high point of that tortured self-loathing inverted narcissist Mm -hmm. version of the who or version of pete townsend you know and it's real grot it's all (laughs) these solipsistic songs about obsessive self-destructive anxiety it's around the time pete townsend turned 30 Mm -hmm. so it's all full of songs called things like however much i booze (laughs) and you know how many friends have i really got and stuff he opens songs with lines like i see myself on tv i'm a faker a paper clown as if anyone's meant to care <laughs> you know as people listen to that going wow you saw yourself on tv fucking brilliant what were you being pulled up by the ears by chris tarrant on tiswell <laughs> this is what anybody else is thinking and he's ending songs with lines like goodbye all you punks you see what i mean yeah. goodbye all you punks stay young and stay high hand me my checkbook while i crawl off to die mm. Like a woman in childbirth grown ugly in a flash. That's nice. <laughs> I've seen magic and pain. Now I'm recycling trash. Oof. To which the only answer is, well, don't do it. Yeah. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, this is not something that ever seemed to hold back David Bowie or Can or Leonard Cohen, Mm. or anyone else who was interesting and interested in their 30s. It just wasn't an issue, because they hadn't nailed everything to their own youthful energy and frustration, dooming themselves to pantomime in, in... in later life and of course that means pete townsend trying to stay youthful ends up sounding like the least youthful person on the planet Mm. there's a line on the who by numbers which goes i lose so many nights of sleep worrying about my responsibilities 
Has there ever been a less rock and roll line <laughs> than I lose so many nights of sleep worrying about my responsibility? Mm. This is what Paul Weller was trying to dodge when he split up the jam at the yeah. age of 23 mm. yeah. and started wearing cycling gear and singing about Milton Keynes. He didn't want to be doing You Better You Bet in 1994. God, no. It might have been an improvement on a uh, uh, Oh Yeah, to be honest. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the thinking. That's the thing. I mean... You know, as soon as you hit 30, to be honest with you, you start dwelling on the good times. You start dwelling on those bits of your past, you know, and a large part of the rest of your life is spent doing that. Don't get me wrong. Mm. It doesn't make for music. It doesn't make for rock and roll. I'm not saying you have to plaster on a smile and face face a future, but you know perhaps get out of yourself a little bit um would have been good for townsend i think yeah have, yeah, yeah. have a drink, <laughs> <laughs> have a drink yeah. no but from 71 onwards i mean look i understand why you know he's 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 lived through one of the most thrilling periods of pop music history and he's been a part of it yeah but you cannot just spend the rest of your career endlessly bitterly dwelling on that fact and what has been lost since and i think if the who were more of a not democratic proposition but i'm looking at i mean townsend had been challenged more rather than by a pig shit thick cunt like Daltrey but somebody <laughs> with you know ideas beyond pure commercial success he, he, he would have developed better but by the time mm. we find him here it's just endless this endless I'm, and I'm not going to say self-pity because you know Townsend would reject that himself I think um, it is slightly drunken slightly red-eyed um, self-piteous but yeah he's just endlessly from about 70 onwards I think just dwelling on the past he can't get over it that once mm. he felt excited and now he feels dead I mean that's yeah, great yeah, yeah. turn that into one song <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure yeah. you can spin the rest of your career out of it uh, and he couldn't shake himself loose from Daltrey because Daltrey was his connection to who he thought he was writing for mm. which yes. was like rough lads who you know yeah, yeah. can't express themselves so they need somebody else to do it for them and as yeah. you know, like a lot of lower middle class people he felt like a link between the working class and the artistic middle class um, mm. and that's what he was explicitly trying to do and it must have been soul destroying to him that the personification of the people he thought he was writing for was like yeah i, I don't want this <laughs> i don't yeah. like this yeah, yeah. can't yeah. we can't we just do i can't explain again yeah maybe the this song's not about a nagging girlfriend who keeps saying you better it's about fucking Daltrey. <laughs> yeah, but the thought of yeah. Daltrey opening his legs and mind to Pete Townsend isn't a pleasant one. Yeah. <laughs> well, you only have to watch Compost Corner to understand that. Yeah. <laughs> as far as Top of the Pops is concerned and this performance, Daltrey is the absolute front person mm. of The Who mm. because he's bagging the lion's share of the camera here with some very awkward cutaways from Townsend. But this week's Enemy News section explains all. Quote from that news piece at the who press launch pete also explained the reason that he wasn't anywhere to be seen on the recent who appearance at top of the pops their first in eight years was because the director unused to townsend's windmill actions on the guitars mistook his flailing arms for a fascist salute and therefore concentrated on doltrain what with the attention being given to the fascist element in england today the director didn't want to inflame the situation 
Do you believe Fucking that? Fucking mental. <laughs> because the thing is, Townsend's holding up a raised fist. Yeah. But mind you, Donald Trump does that nowadays, because that's the right wing, isn't it? They always nick all the good left wing stuff. <laughs> Cunts. That might not be true, but I really hope it is. <laughs> yeah. Also, it means you get a lot of John Entwistle, which is like, at least evens it oh. up after years and years and years of TV appearances mm. where you never saw John Entwistle. I was going to say anything else to say. Yeah, I interviewed him once, Pete Townsend. Yeah, in the 90s. Really? Obviously. Not a proper in-depth interview, because people like me would never be allowed to do that. It was a thing for Rebellious Jukebox in Melody Maker. Right. Feature oh, right where yeah. People would list their favourite records and talk about them. Was um, it face-to-face or a phone-up? Face-to-face. I did oh. it at his house. It's up Ooh. by Eel Pie Island. Wow. So we, we were sat in the little recording studio built onto the side of his house. Mm. And I found out years later from reading his terrible autobiography and working out the chronology, this was about a fortnight after he'd finally given up drinking, which explains why his hands were shaking so badly every time he lit a Marlboro light, which was very, very often. Either that or he was nervous being in the presence of the great Taylor Polk's Melody Maker. Come on. Yeah, it's (laughs) probably probably a bit of both, wasn't it, really, if you're being honest. Mm. But he was exactly as I expected and in a way exactly as i'd Mm -hmm. hoped he was still completely obsessed with what was young and new right more so now that he was effectively excluded from it so he was Mm. asking me about Mm. i don't fucking know you know but it was (laughs) was the mid 90s so he was full of the possibilities of the internet for music and music writing as though Mm. that effect was going to be something more than simply to fragment and impoverish bless him <laughs> poor <laughs> bastard it's all his own fault but you know oh, we all felt like that yeah, at the time yeah. though taylor which of us which of us honestly can't say that everything is our own fault you know still doesn't mean it's fair and if you want to know what it was like working for melody maker at that time when it finally went into the paper someone changed the spelling of his name so it was wrong oh. it took the h out took the h out yeah sorry yeah so the following week you better you bet stayed at number nine before dropping down the chart but face dancers entered the lp chart at number three a week later and then spent two weeks at number two held off number Number one by Kings of the Wild Frontier. The follow-up, Don't Let Go the Coat, only got to number 47 in May, and they finished the year with Athena getting to number 40 in October. Although they put out the LP It's Hard in 1982, garnering an American single hit with Eminence Front, a fault line developed between Townsend, who wanted the band to stop touring and become a studio-only concern, and Daltrey and M. Twistle, who respectively wanted to whirl a microphone about and then throw it dead-eye and catch it, or just stand there in an enormous <laughs> dome for the rest of their lives, which resulted in their farewell tour in late 1982. And after after Townsend attempted to write their final contractually obligated LP for Polydor, he gave up, bought himself and Kenny Jones out of their contracts and announced he was leaving in December of 1983. 
However, they reunited for their final gig at Live Aid in 1985, their final tour in 1989, their final gig in 1996, their final tour in 1999, their final tour in 2000, their final tour in 2002, even though John N. Twistle died in a Las Vegas hotel the night before the first date, their final LP, Endless Wire, in 2006, their final tour in 2012, 2015, and 2016 their final LP Who in 2019 and their final tour which finished last year (laughs) and they'll be beginning their final tour in Hull this July there's still time to die before I get old tour Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. From the LP Face Dances, that's The Who, and You Better You Best at number nine. Something really delicate from Stevie Wonder is released. It's in the chart at 18, and Legs and Kerr are going to dance to it. It's called Lately. with his hand in his pocket and adopting a pose which my non would have described as slorming about, <laughs> introduces something really delicate that's going to be emoted to by Legs & Co. It's Lately by Stevie Wonder. We've covered Steve and Morris a time or two, and this, the follow-up to I Ain't Gonna Stand For It, which got to number 10 in January of this year, is the third cut from his 19th LP, Hotter Than July, which came out last September. 
It entered the charts a fortnight ago at number 57, then soared 30 places to number 27. And this week, it's up nine places to number 18, causing Legs and Co. to embark upon a second wave of dadisfaction. <laughs> and yeah, Neil, I didn't know that this was Pauline's last ever performance on Top of the Pops, and it's a shame they didn't let her pog it. Indeed. I mean, truth be told, I, I wasn't really looking at Legs and Co. during this. I was staring at the strange crenellated ball hanging down to the right. Yeah, which just, looks like a big scotch egg. Well, it just made me repeatedly <laughs> yearn for the long-wanted bliss of ear syringing. <laughs> oh, what a dream. <laughs> But no, it's barely dance, isn't it, what they're asked to do? I mean, which you can't really dance to this record anyway. No. It's more of a selection of sort of one and two point balances with them dressed in some sort of strange blend of, of Native American tribal dress. They've been given an absolute mm. dog to dance to it mm. in terms of dancing, but it's not a bad song. It starts with Rosie, Jill and Sue depicted in close-up forming a pyramid shape, possibly in tribute to the cover of Zenyatta Mondata, <laughs> while Lulu lies on the floor of a, a very sparse set which features a long blue bit of fabric that's just been draped at an angle and a, a brown crusty globe hanging down like you know like a big scotch egg and that's your lot mm. legs and co ego they're supposed to look like you know full of eastern promise aren't mm. they like the turkish delight advert <laughs> the overall effect is a turkish delight advert shot during a technician strike isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you're right it's got to be the least mobile dance routine i've ever seen Mm. Now their Fitbits barely registered it. <laughs> no. like they don't do any of the horsey horsey or the the knee pointing. Mm. Most of it is just hot girl on girl staring. Yeah, um, yes, which yeah. got quite an erotic charge. You know, if it if you didn't know they were trying not to giggle. Mm. Um, and I discovered this is Rose's favourite Legs and Co performance. Really? Yeah, and you can sort of see why. Because it's classy, isn't it? Mm. Yes. In the yeah, same way as yeah. the record, which is to say 1981 classy. Mm. And mm. they look very nice, and they're not made to look silly like normal. But yeah. also, like the record, it's immobile and a bit unengaging, I think. Yeah. I don't know if that's a controversial view. No, it's, it's not exactly controversial. I mean, for me, when I heard this track, because it's been a while since I've heard this track, well, they're being familiar with it, uh, as we all were. I think, it, you know, it's a fairly big hit. For me, it sounded like it wouldn't be out of place on uh, the oft-forgot Stevie album that I think everyone should listen to the most, in a way, fulfilling this first finale. It sounds mm. like something off that. It reminds me of something like They Won't Go and I Go. Yeah. Or kind of a ballad of songs in the key of life, something like Ask. Mm. So it's a good song. It's a good song, but yeah, its immobility is part of its point. It's kind of a static song, and consequently the dancing reflects that. I can't believe it's a favourite, but perhaps it's precisely, yeah, it's that classiness, that staticness mm. that puts it in her affections. Yeah. But yeah, I wasn't looking at Legs and Cow. I was, strange, I was looking at that weird, what is it? What yeah. is that thing meant to represent? Uh, God I can't knows. quite get it. Did they nick it off the set of Blake 7 or something? It does look like something like that. It's probably got eyes on the other side. Or something. I don't know. <laughs> But the song, is this Stevie Wonder's last great ballad? I fucking love it. Well, what, what ballads has he done after this that we should be aware of? Well, um, forget, I just called to say I love you. Well, this is it. Yeah. This is it. And that's the cut-off point, isn't it? Yeah. So we're, we're not messing with Stevie after that or mm. even with that. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's the black American talking in your sleep by Crystal Gale, isn't it? <laughs> There's something going on behind his back. Yeah, I, I always say it's about Stevie Wonder, but... 
with a lot of artists you love the stuff that they did in one period and then you hate the stuff they did in some other period mm. but with stevie wonder i find this split happening on the same albums right like there's always something that is the greatest thing i've ever heard mm. and then there's something that sounds like an ass mm. and <laughs> it's unsettling to me because obviously in terms of talent stevie wonder is in the top circle you know mm. He's one of the relatively small group of people who were genuinely musically and creatively gifted and didn't need the egalitarianism of popular music to express themselves, mm. except in terms of escaping his background, obviously. Mm. In purely musical terms, he's one of those who could well have been composing concertos for the court in 1835. Mm. You know, if he wasn't a blind black man... Yeah. You know, there's mm. a good chance that mm. on talent he could have been there, sat next to, you know, Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson <laughs> and Burt Bacharach. To the point where some of it is actually frightening to any mortal musician mm. who can see what he's doing but has no idea how he came up with yeah. it. But his middle-of-the-road streak is a big problem for me, even on his best records, right? right. Although I've never quite understood the phrase middle-of-the-road because... First of all, okay, if you're in the middle of the road, you've got edgy and challenging music on one side of mm. you, and on the other, what? Yeah. And also, since when was the safe choice to be in the middle of the road? Yeah. That sounds riskier <laughs> than almost anything exactly, else. Exactly, yeah. When Stevie's soft, he's very soft indeed. And, and, you know, when I first came to Songs in the Key of Life, which is one of my favourite albums now, I was initially daunted by some of those balladic kind of songs. They are they're soppy they're not soppy they're, they're, they're sweet yeah. I used to go straight for you know living in the city and the funk stuff much more than the ballads I think as I've got older I see how he's weaving something mm. that you've got to kind of put yourself in for the duration of and eventually you stomach it um, and I don't mean it's difficult to stomach, but eventually you take that even as a young listener. It's like when, as a young listener, when everyone's telling me to listen to Forever Changes, right? Yeah. I've got to say the first time, say, I listened to Forever Changes, I was like, this is dead soft. You know, what's going on here? Mm. Um, I'm not really into this. But then, of course, it grows on you. And that's what happened with me with Stevie. Sly Stone presented no such problems. But no. Stevie did. Yeah. Songs uh. in the Key of Life is a long record. And there's some very, very soft, sappy stuff on there. But as you get older, I think, yeah, it becomes it becomes more amenable to you and lately is from that side of him yeah. I haven't I've got to admit checked out the album that this is from because I do kind of part company with Stevie after songs in the key of life really yeah. um, I have the occasional moment when I go for the private life of plants but um, yeah I mean I, I, I sort of avoid 80s Stevie because of that horrible record that's coming down the pipe in a few years the secret life of the plants. secret life of plants i should have said the private life of plants kind of like suggests you know stamen action <laughs> indeed, indeed. i think what it is i can take some people's middle of the road leanings because what happens is it gets mixed in with what they usually do yeah. and the amalgam that comes out is unusual and interesting like forever changes it's like there's a, that little bit of middle of the road strings mixed in with this like psychotic yeah sort of yeah, unpleasant yeah. man music but stevie's commander music is so effortless that when he decides to do middle of the road he just snaps his fingers and it's just instant super slick middle of the road mm, yeah. there's no yeah. errors or mutations he just does it yeah. and there it is mm. and i never like it you know and i mean I like all the different kinds of music. Disco, classical, military band, yeah. 
think that's all of them. Um, <laughs> but I struggle with this kind of thing. You know, you are the sunshine of my life and all that. Like stuff from his good period, and I don't like it. Right. You know? And this is a superior slick ballad because it's by Stevie Wonder before he completely lost it. Mm. And I like some things about it. I can appreciate the way that the hook line rises up quickly and then slowly flutters back down again like an autumn leaf. Mm. It's very smartly done. And it worked because I remember this being on the radio at the time very clearly. And at this age, I was aware of the charts, but I only registered the stuff that was actually memorable. Yeah. So it's clearly not terrible mm. or forgettable. It just doesn't do anything much for me. It's like it's too nicely done, mm. you know. Mm. So it just has to join a bunch of other Stevie Wonder records with a bunch of Kate Bush records, um, Weather Report, you know, Paul Simon, stuff that I can see is good. I just don't respond to it. Mm -hmm. I heard this on the radio once and I just burst into tears, man. Oh, man. Oh, I envy you. <laughs> I was just, just going through all manner of shit with my girlfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was in the paper shop getting some uh, Backy and Rizzlers before going to work and it came on and it just stopped me in my tracks and just oh, fucking lost it, man. Yeah. Which is something I wouldn't have done in 1981. He would have been like, oh, can we have something else please yeah you do need to fall in love and get your heart broken to yes. understand a lot of Stevie stuff yeah. I haven't really investigated Hotter in July as much as I should but I do note in the track list he does his own version of a song he wrote in the 60s for Tammy Terrell mm. which is called All I Do Is Think About You which never got released it's one of the greatest Motown songs ever definitely one of the greatest slow Motown songs ever you need to investigate it only came right. out on CD a few years ago it's fucking incredible mm. video playlist yeah. but i mean he's not in the studio but no <laughs> in contrast to an awful lot of the 60s figures we're seeing this year stevie is coming out of this with dignity yeah <laughs> you know yeah for now yeah, for now i mean his last great single to my mind was do i do a, a year later mm -hmm. but yeah after that gets hard it does get very difficult but fucking hell what a run oh yeah what a run if, you, if the only thing you'd ever done was Superstition on Sesame Street. Mm. It could have made 25 albums that sounded like fucking Mumford and Sons. It wouldn't matter. <laughs> you did it. You did no, the no, greatest no, thing right. anyone has ever done in music. So the following week, lately, soared 12 places to number six, and a fortnight later began a two-week run at number three. The follow-up, Happy Birthday, did even better, getting to number two in August behind Green Door by Chicken Steven. <laughs> Cause this time could mean goodbye. Hey, excellent. Slates and Co. Dancing the City Wonders lately. And this is two out of two for Phil Collins. Off his LP face value, I missed again. Hey, excellent, Purs Paul at Legs and Co. As he stands there with his free hand suggestively on his belt buckle in front of a few rows of kids who all look as if they've been made to sit in the corner and think about what they've done to Sharon Red. <laughs> he then tells us that it's two out of two for the next act, Phil Collins with I Missed Again. 
We've chanced upon Phil Collins a couple of times in chart music and this, his second solo single, is the follow-up to In The Air Tonight, which got to number two only a month ago, held off number one by Woman by John Lennon. It's the second cut from the LP Face Value, which came out last month and immediately spent three weeks at number one in the album chart and is still hanging in there in the face of the ant invasion at number two and it was recorded with the assistance of the Earth, Wind and Fire horn section. It entered the chart a fortnight ago at number 45 and the BBC immediately invited him into the Stew Stew Studio, if you will, (laughs) which helped it soar 25 places to number 20. This week it's leapt six places to number 14, so here is a repeat of that performance fucking hell lots of repeats this week yeah there's a few in there but anyway that powell introduction where he displays interest at phil collins for having two hits in a row it's a timely reminder isn't it chaps that being the drummer out of genesis wasn't a guarantee of an endless run of hits in early 1981 no no but face value is massive mm. and it's like a showreel of what he can do outside of genesis yes and in a weird way that album not that i sit around listening to it much it does when you think about all the tracks that became singles and stuff it prefigures the 80s a lot more than perhaps more revered less commercially successful albums do mm. you know what we ultimately have here is an adolescent or young man of the 60s and 70s coming out the other side of the a divorce and making music definitely pitched at an adult audience mm. i mean it's not that i think phil considers the f- kiddie stuff beneath him but he's going to dominate the 80s both in bands and out of bands mm. and scoring massive solo hits then they're not in any other way analogous but he's like the rod stewart of the 80s in that mm. in that regard it's like what rod stewart does in the 70s yeah. and what he's ultimately saying is comforting it's hey look i know you like these new sounds but you might not like the weirdos using those new sounds i'm going to use those new sounds but i'm going to make music for grown-ups hence its success i think yeah and he could have been on this episode five minutes earlier you know he approached pete townsend a few weeks after the death of keith moon offered Mm. up his services but townsend had already asked kenny jones but pete townsend was clearly up for it though and it would have been interesting having phil collins to bounce off yeah how long it would have lasted i don't know (laughs) Mm. (laughs) thing is as divorce albums go i mean Look, obviously, every middle-aged man who's just gone through a separation can identify with a lyric like, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. (laughs) Um, But when you listen to a great divorce album like Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, that's an unfair comparison, right? Mm. But All right, or a a great divorce pop single like The Winner Takes It All by ABBA. Mm. They're full of all these tiny insights and Mm. little chilling details with tragic, residents and all that stuff and face value just seems like some old cunt moaning by comparison (laughs) and it's a difficult balance to get right between Mm. magic and some old cunt moaning (laughs) so they tell me um yeah the original title for chart music that was wasn't it (laughs) (laughs) but look we we should probably start with the paint pot on the piano round one of phil collins versus dignity (laughs) and boy does he come out swinging (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, let's talk about the paint pot because it's making a return after its debut when he did in the air tonight. We all know that his missus ran off with a painter and decorator the year before, and some people assume it's a wry comment on that, but allow me to direct you to chapter 10 of Not Dead Yet, his 2016 memoir. Quote... About that tin of paint, In the Air Tonight comes out as a single in the UK on January the 5th, 1981. Within a week, it's at number 36, and I'm at the BBC, appearing on their Nation Uniting weekly chart show. How am I going to perform the song? I'm still not comfortable standing there with a microphone, especially on TV, so I'll play keyboards. And my engineer, Rodian Factorium Steve Pud Jones says, I'll get a keyboard stand. Nah, looks a bit Duran Duran to me. Get a Black & Decker work, mate. That'll do. OK, what will we put the drum machine on? Um, a tea chest. The tin of paint? That's because we're going for rehearsal after rehearsal and the top of the Pops producers are desperately trying to make this tea chest look interesting. So Pud just adds little bits. A paint pot? So there it is. Indeed, a DIY theme to that infamous Top of the Pops performance. But it has nothing to do with my wife going off with a decorator. That performance and that paint pot have come back to haunt me time and time again. I mean, it needs stressing here that he actually did work as a painter and decorator in the 60s when Genesis had just started up. And apparently this other bloke was actually a public school type who'd just lost his job and was acting as the real decorators mate so there we go mm. you think after hanging out with genesis for 10 years uh phil collins would be a little bit sick of being aced out by public school boys wouldn't you mm. i never understood yeah. it because it like i always thought it was a bit weird because you can't tell whether it's meant to be ah you're sleeping in my bed with my wife but in the daytime mm. you're painting walls and i'm on top of the pops or you know where horrible paint cunt took my wife away here is his emblem it's a shame that cuckolder pop stars didn't use props like phil collins has done you know tony blackburn could have pitched up on top of the pops wearing the nudie woman apron <laughs> like the one out of robin's nest <laughs> yeah it's you just think nowadays his wife would respond by putting a picture on instagram of her sitting at a piano with a button mushroom on top of it <laughs> i'll tell you what's really funny when you look at him here by the way he's not even that bold no it's strange isn't it it's like how when you see on the buses now and olive isn't actually particularly fat or ugly Mm. you know it's like you say how did this happen but anyway the song i i've got to say i think it's meant i think it's far superior to in the air tonight do you yeah i do yeah (laughs) and i'm saying it right now Uh, doing chart music has left me with a shocking revelation that i kind of get on with a lot of avent's genesis and phil collins and that's because collins has pretty much taken over the band by now and he's he's leaning on his love of 60s black music yeah he's featured in the top 10 in smash it's his bit section the other month and he he drops earth wind and fire Mm -hmm. who he says has been his biggest influence over the past few years the Jacksons the Miracles and his all-time favourite group The Action who I get into in a very big way in a year or two's time yeah so yeah when it came on the radio back in the day it's like oh this is alright and now appearing on Top of the Pops after The Who more of this please he he seems really at ease doesn't he and comfortable Mm. he sort of knows his own limitations and so consequently he's not going to try and look 80s um, 
or, or, or dress up. Well, I mean, yeah, I know he's not that bald, but in contrast to the amount of hair going on elsewhere in this episode, mm. he's comparatively bald. Um, but he's this kind of dressed down, very approachable, avuncular figure. He's not going to put makeup on in no. any way, dressed no. differently in this new decade. And he actually tells us in this decade, you know, that he can't dance. Mm. Uh, this song, it has a touch of ELO's Evil Woman about it as well, melodically. Um, oh, yes. Crossed with, as you mentioned, a kind of uh, EW vibe the thing is he's had the hit now you know and he's consequently looking very relaxed mm. he looks like he literally just got the cab from his guildford home <laughs> aforementioned to do this mm. and who joins him on stage is a bit odd because they look like cameramen in disguise to be honest with you yes they do <laughs> i'm not entirely sure if they had any part to play in face value at all it's certainly not the original sax player on this record because because that's ronnie scott in it and it's not him is ronnie scott the one playing the trumpet i don't think so yeah that would be odd but yeah Yeah. ronnie scott the the ronnie scott this new love for late 70s uh phil and genesis have you actually dived into face value are you loving it out no i haven't yet no because (laughs) in the air tonight puts me off (laughs) but i need to listen to what are in july and face value now because you haven't finished listening to Duke no. <laughs> and Abacab. Yeah. <laughs> By this time, Genesis and Phil Collins are on a roll, man. They're shitting out the hits. And, you know, as a curator of pub quizzes, I know that people will have difficulty in remembering who did what song. You know, people think Abacab is a Phil Collins song. So I've devised a rhyme that I teach people to help them out. Ooh. And I'd like to share it with the pop craze youngsters, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. So Let's hear it. If the lyrics are gibberish, the song must be by Genesis. But if they whine about a cheating wife, that's Phil Collins. You can bet your life. (laughs) So there you go. That's locked in there now, Al. I will never forget that. Yeah. Much like my sister's mnemonic for diarrhea, I will never forget that. Go on. Oh, you know, diarrhea is a difficult word to spell. Very difficult word to spell. So just let me lodge this in people's heads. Did it at Robert Redford's house one early afternoon. There you go. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a strange man against whom to have a vendetta. <laughs> but I sort of did. Like, like a lot of people after this, a few years after this, he was just below dire straits mm. and weirdly a uh, five star right. in my <laughs> personal rogues gallery Whoa. at the time when i was a teenager and it's partly just the fact that he was so brazen in his blandness mm. like it was his selling point you know it was like it was his personal brand like sheer and now mm. you know? and that enraged me at a time when i still thought there might be hope <laughs> so to stay pure I had to wipe my brain of the feeling that maybe In the Air Tonight was an imaginative and unusual record. (laughs) And instead, just get exercised about stuff like the way he spent most of the 80s copying styles of black American music, past and present, which maybe he couldn't really pull off, in return for which he was worshipped by two generations of black American Mm, musicians who clearly knew far less about the subject than I did. (laughs) But I'd hear 1999 by Prince, and then I'd hear Susudio by (laughs) Phil Collins, and I just couldn't process how the latter was a fractionally bigger worldwide hit. In the same way that at that age, you can't process how the world won't simply 
bend to your will mm. and reality won't bend to your own intuition of what does and doesn't make sense yeah. you know i mean this was put out as a lead cut from uh, face value in america above in the air tonight yeah it's more radio friendly mm. it is yeah. It? yeah yeah taylor you weren't even persuaded by you know, the proto-industrial grooves of mama <laughs> <laughs> oh. i don't know what it is with phil collins is that he wasn't just a good musician he had actual imagination and, and feeling in his playing even though i don't like genesis right mm. he was a really good drummer and if you listen to some of the drumming he did on good records by other people in the 70s it's great you know and he also had pretty good taste in music and yet what comes out of him is this terrible gauzy wine you know mm. and it annoyed me because it came across the same way he did as mm. pinched and unremarkable and hyper conventional and simultaneously humble and apologetic mm. and sour and grudgeful it's like this kind of rich little man music yeah you know? and it's bloody mindedly stubborn in its refusal to venture beyond the crushingly ordinary you know and when it does like on in the air tonight suddenly he sounds talented and the music at least sounds interesting i mean is that a better or worse record than harold the barrel but it was his choice to do a kind of pastiche act and i think that's partly Mm. why he rubs people at the wrong way he made that choice and he didn't have to Mm. now probably he just heard a lot of this kind of breezy radio friendly sort of quasi jazz funk pop on the radio and wanted to make one you know which is Mm. fair enough Mm. and of course he was deliberately going commercial after 10 years in a prog band like the london pro reasserting himself as one of the common men after having to sit behind those public school fops for 10 years with their (laughs) songs about sentient aubergines and fantastical (laughs) croquet matches like Mm. the streets weren't burning man um (laughs) it might just have been liberating for him to turn on the radio and think you know what i like this stuff and i know how to do it Mm. yeah even before you got to the millions of pounds it could potentially make him but the trouble is although he could do it he didn't really have any flair for it because his problem was he was talented but it wasn't really a creative talent he was a drummer and that's not being schneid it's just a different kind of musicality Mm. the fact that he could also sing and play piano and knock a tune together and Mm. make it sound technically good i think fooled him into thinking that he was a creative talent but Mm. no there's something else you need for that you can be a really good musician you can be multi-talented to a very high professional standard with a a a real feel for music and great imagination and all that and still be a horribly pedestrian writer and performer in fact in in this case you're horribly pedestrian work will sound so assured and superficially pleasing to the ear it means it might sell which just makes it worse Mm. he does that thing in performance as well repeatedly of sort of chuckling to himself (laughs) like with the daftness of it all so he doesn't take himself too seriously yeah Yeah. oh do you follow him all the way i mean is easy lover on your radar al is is oh yeah that's a tune man i think that's a fucking great tune but that's a philip bailey song not a collins song yeah 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 even i like but it's phil's drums and they're great drums yeah anything else to say about this it's just the best of what he did sounds better now 
right it Mm. sounds sort of competent and okay if you can switch off and dream yourself into the aesthetic universe of grand theft auto Mm, i was just about to say grand theft yeah so you you, you're essentially eating the carton empty but it's easy to forget at the time this was the sound of evil yeah Mm. this is the sound of upwardly mobile slime yeah you know and front lawns being concreted over and filled with pebbles and turned into driveways for new bmw with disastrous effects on the local water table. Yeah. And it was also the sound of adult music, like popular, big-selling music, which wasn't specifically aimed at young teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like every Phil Collins album should have come with a little sign saying, done roaming, you know, <laughs> hang it on your brain. And, and it sounds silly to say this now, because who cares about Phil Collins? And if you do, you know, who's got time to hate him? Mm. But... That's because time has drained the poison. So people can mm. listen to this and think, oh, yeah, it's all right. But we should probably remember what it was mm. and what it was used for. You yeah. Know? yeah, and it, and it's probably good to remember as well that his Motown covers that became big hits are some of the most horrible records of the Fuck 80s. Fucking hell, yeah. They're such defeated and defeating things. Um, that shouldn't be forgotten either. Yeah. Face Value isn't an album I sit around listening to. I suspect it will be soon. I am going to get to it. By the way... Well, you're not getting divorced, are you, Neil? No, no, no. It's just that by the time I caught up with all those 80s things that I hated at a principle <laughs> and actually hear what they sound like, that um, do not bother, by the way, with the police... <laughs> and I don't mean ever, because some of their songs are pretty good, man. But their albums do not hold up. No. Um, you know, I had memories of, because my sister was really into the police. Um, and I had memories of the album being good. Um, but she's given me all her albums now. And I listened to a police album the other day, and it was shite. So which just one? don't bother. Oh, it's the first one, I think. Is it oh. Alandos de Moor? I can't remember which one it, what it's yeah. called. I think it's just called The Police, isn't it? But, um, no, Alandos de Moor. Alandos de Moor, yeah, dreadful. Best mm. thing they ever did was Landlord, the B-side of Roxanne. But, um, yeah. yeah, do not bother with the police. Too much jokes. Yeah. Not enough Copeland. Yeah. That's yeah. like Jefferson Airplane. Just don't listen to those albums. <laughs> Say what, the, the thing about Phil Collins, I wish that his pent-up rage and resentment could have been given more voice, you know. And I don't just mean about his <laughs> wife. I mean, it's almost fascinating that it's not just that he was crabby and undignified about his own love life when you look at the rest of his emotional range you know you know that thing a few years ago it came out about how he hates paul mccartney because mm. he met him and right. felt really patronized yeah yeah and it's understandable because that is what paul mccartney can be like but what a strange thing to even think about if you're phil collins right It's interesting Mm -hmm. because he spotted that about McCartney, which most musicians don't. They're just in awe and Mm -hmm. they let it go. I've seen film of Paul McCartney outrageously patronising Ozzy Osbourne, right? But Ozzy Osbourne is just love-struck. He doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Phil noticed it and he really cared and got pissed off about it and got a grudge about it and i don't know what that says about him i just wish there was more of that madness expressed directly in his music you know i would listen to a mystifyingly bitter little twerp like frothing and raging against these smooth expensive backdrops and probably like that more you know rather than just him melting into the metallic finish you know because i gotta be honest this song was a hit and i've heard it 
a number of times in the past week and I can't even remember how it goes. <laughs> now, frankly, this whole record, to me, is about as memorable as those parts of the song Living in a Box by Living in a Box that don't go, am I living in a box, am I living in a cardboard box? And if you ask me to hum both those songs to you now, mm. my God, what a mess that would be. Luckily, we got better things to do. So the following week, I missed again, dropped three places to number 17. The follow-up, If Leaving Me Is Easy, got to number 17 in June, and he finished the year with the first cut from his next LP, Hello, I Must Be Going, Through These Walls, only getting to number 56 in October. But he'd start 1982 with his cover of You Can't Hurry Love, spending two weeks at number one in January, and he'd coast through the 80s and beyond. Phil Collins and I missed the game. Excellent single, that. Well, the band who are going to represent us at Eurovision on April the 4th in Dublin have a name which is made up of simple things like orange juice and a bit of champagne. Don't let the cord go. It's got to be, and good luck to them. Bucks Fizz! Turn to POW, standing twixt two young ladies wearing matching horrible blouses with squiggles on them and see-through visors, holding up bottles and clearly preparing to do a bit. POW tells us that it's Eurovision time once more and explains the name of the group that are going to ride out to Dublin to defend our musical honour by getting one girl to hold up a bottle of orange juice and the other a bottle of champagne. Shame he didn't do the same thing for Candy Flip nine years later, but never mind. (laughs) Here's Bucks Fizz and making your mind up. We've become the definitive podcast authorities on Bugs Fizz since we started our odyssey on chart music, and this is the single that brought them to the dance. They were formed in late 1980 by the composing management in a relationship team of Nicola Martin and Andy Hill, specifically to make a run at the Eurovision Song Contest. And their first pick was Mike Nolan, a singer from the proto-boy band Brooks, who was managed by Freya Miller before she guided Comrade Shakey's March to Glory and originally featured Chris Hamill, who went on to be Lamal. He went off and recorded the demo of the song that they'd already written with Eurovision 81 in mind, this one. With that demo tape nestling snugly in their pocket, they then offered a spot to Cheryl Baker, who had already represented the UK with Coco in 1978, and while she was making her mind up whether to join the band or not, they held an audition for the missing piece of the puzzle, opening it up to men and women with the intention of forming a three-piece with two males and one female, but keeping their options if Baker decided against it. But they found it impossible to turn away the Italia Conti graduate and former Miss Pearlie 1978, Jay Aston. The male choice was easy. 
the theatrical singer Stephen Fisher. But when he landed a part in Godspell at the Young Vic, he had to turn them down, so the spot was offered to a former builder and plumber who had packed it all in to become a pub singer and an understudy for Pontius Pilate in the West End run of Jesus Christ superstar Robert Gubbett who changed his name to Bobby G. The brand new four-piece immediately signed to RCA and was shoved into Pineapple Studios and put through a two-day dance routine boot camp organised by Chrissy Wickham, the dark-haired one out of hot gossip. And eight days ago, they took part in a song for Europe, not only crushing the favourites Liquid Gold and Unite, a six-girl band which featured Kathy Hargreaves out of Grange Hill under their heels, but also battering Andy Hill's own band, Gem. RCA rushed out the single by the end of the week and they were instantly adopted by the BBC and flung into a whirlwind of promotional appearances and although the single hasn't charted yet, the BBC looks after its own. So, a full 16 days before they sally forth to Dublin to take on Bjorn Bingabonger and his European ilk, <laughs> here they are for their first ever Top of the Pops performance. Yes, Jay Aston, Miss Pearly, 1970. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I watched Miss England 1978 just the other day, in fact. Of course you did, Taylor. Two worlds <laughs> collide. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cheryl appears as part of Coco, who yeah. are there as the failed British entry in the 1978 Eurovision Song Contest, mm-hmm. dressed as a pride float from the planet Mongo. <laughs> And Jay is there as a failed contestant. Yes, Miss yeah. Pearly, no She less. didn't get past the uh, the first bit, so we don't see her in a bikini. No, what we do get... Um, look, it's basically, this is one of the great horrible beauty contests. It's hosted <laughs> by Terry Wogan. You're a connoisseur of them, aren't you, Taylor? So you know what you're talking about. I really do. It's terrible. <laughs> um, hosted by Terry Wogan in a frilled green shirt that looks like a mint Vionetta. Um, with his Radio 2 piss mop Ray Moore as the voiceover <laughs> man, which allows yes. Terry to skip those awkward scenes where usually the presenter has to interview the girls with a hand mic, you know, and it's mm. like, well, I have to ask, please, can I just touch you? <laughs> um, so instead, what happens is they walk down the catwalk while Ray off screen makes remarks about them into a microphone <laughs> it's fucking awful he says things like susan cockett 20 years old and has in fact been involved in the national child development survey since birth developed rather well i'd have thought oh, no. oh yeah fixed smile from susan cockett um oh. or, or things like beverly isherwood miss blackburn her great passion in life is watching golf, and a pretty attractive birdie she is herself. Oh, too. No, he man. says it. He really does say that. <laughs> this was actually fit for broadcast. Oh, yeah. Janet Morris, Miss Scunthorpe, a great musician, very fond of playing the piano. Terry was telling me she's got a lovely touch. <laughs> it's a, a bit disturbing how many of his jokes are about the contestants supposedly having sex with Terry Wogan. Mm. But his comments on Jay Aston are oh, yes. probably the worst of all of them. Um, she comes out in a frock uh, and he says, a rather interesting girl, very keen on weight training. And she picked up a train to get here tonight. 
Now, I don't know if he meant to say she caught a train, yeah. which would make more sense as a joke, right? She's into weight training. She's very strong. She caught a train, right? Mm. I don't know. But unfortunately, what he actually said, he might as well have said, she pulled a train to get on this program tonight. <laughs> yes. It's a really unkind suggestion. Poor Jay. Poor Jay. I know. And we were seeing her at the beginning because all the, the girls get to introduce themselves. I was appalled to see Miss Nottingham fucking it up. Oh, really? I, I didn't... I didn't... Look, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of being an ersatz Ray Moore here. Miss Nottingham couldn't even say Miss Nottingham. <laughs> no, but... She was the only busty lady in the whole competition. Right. And I can't say I noticed, Taylor. I, I know, so. well, you wouldn't, you see. You're not a connoisseur of these things. But <laughs> you don't get a lot of busty women in beauty contests of the old mm. school, right? So I was just sort of thinking, well, good for her. She didn't let that hold her back. <laughs> oh, and in case you're interested, um, it's finally won by Miss Blackburn, Beverly Isherwood. Um, oh. Largely, I think, for a, a storming go in the round where the uh, finalists get interviewed by Esther Ranson. Um, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, as the, to, to see what their personalities are like. Esther comes on and grills them. <laughs> and to be fair, Beverly Isherwood, Miss Blackburn, does actually have a personality, so she wins. Good. Beverly Isherwood, best unknown as the original projected letters girl on Countdown. Um, really? Yes, until the producers decided that having a dolly dealer for the numbers mm. and a different one for the letters was mm. just uh, overkill. So they axed her. Not literally, as far as I know, mm. much to Ray Moore's chagrin, but uh, <laughs> unceremoniously. But anyway, this song, I mean, there's absolutely no point in talking about the song or the routine because if you're listening to chart music, you know, every fucking millisecond of it. But I've got to say that when I approached this song with fresh eyes, it just immediately hit me. It's a, it's another fucking rock and roll song, isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can easily imagine Racy doing this with a bit more piano and a bit more drum. Yeah. And they could even bring a girl on so uh, yeah. Mr. Racy could rip her skirt off. <laughs> this could perfectly accompany, to be honest with you, Danny and Sandy on the Shaken Shack. I mean, it, mm. it, it's got that Grease soundtrack feel to it. Yeah, and there's even more hand jiving going on. Fucking hell. <laughs> But this record's very important to me. I mean, this was my Falklands, this record. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really was. I absolutely loved this when it came out. Mm. Extremely catchy. Great gimmicks. Gorgeous people. Perfect facial expressions. Great production. It felt like an inevitable winner. We were in that period. I mean, yeah. England goes through that period of caring about the Eurovision and then, you know, not caring because actually we're good mm. at music and we don't need to win it. But I, th I think by 81, we were a bit pissed off we hadn't won it for a while. So, oh, five whole years, Neil. That's a drought, indeed, isn't it? Indeed. So... We we all thought, come on, it's a great song. It's got to win. And, you know, books visit make better records, I think. London Make Believe, mm. now those days are gone. And they'd find themselves, like Dollar, really, curiously adjacent to, to New Park. But I think this is, yeah, it's got it's that most irresistible moment. Mm. It's sort of clever enough not to just be totally dismissible as cheese, but it is dumb enough to get in your head on first exposure. Yeah. And I did like, and I do think, um, I'm not totally barking up the wrong tree. As a kid, I thought the lyrics were kind of half a love song and half like at the judges, right. you know, because there's all this stuff about making your mind up and going for mm. the right choice. And it does feel it's got that, that metaness. So, yeah, this was the best moment to be English since the 66 cup final, really. Yeah. I the lyrics always confused me a bit mm. because what do you really have to speed up and then really have to slow down? <laughs> mm. I've lost value 
valuable time mm. pondering this, like in fear of having something important in my life running at the wrong speed, which is mm. something I've long suspected to be the case. <laughs> Possibly oral sex. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll trust Bobby G on that. But <laughs> I've also lost even more valuable time pondering on the exact meaning of the line, don't let your indecision mm. take you from behind. Mm. Because if we really have to anthropomorphize individual character traits in this way i'm not sure that's the kind of behavior you'd associate with indecision <laughs> no <laughs> taking you from behind like especially against your will mm. seems a bit assertive to me yeah it's quite decisive mm. isn't it really yeah i mean the only scenario i can imagine is that indecision had already come around the front of you and then decided mm. to go around the back mm. and then it came back around the front again and you were like come on this is ridiculous yeah i can't have this a sort of pincer movement yeah <laughs> to the point where eventually you got so pissed off with it indecision went storming out of the bedroom in tears <laughs> just screaming at you look i'm sorry but if i wasn't like this i wouldn't be indecision mm. and <laughs> if you don't like it why did you fuck fucking marry me and out the door it's the kind of terrible emotional scene that people like bucks fizz just don't think about mm. no. when they come swanning in mm. telling everyone what they can and can't do it's terrible they ought to stick to what they're good at which yeah. is cybernetics uh blow football and necromancy mm. um it's, do you know what I mean? It, it's like a, it's supposed to be a really simple song. Like they're all there dressed like two year olds, you know, in like mm. washing powder advert colours. Mm. But the lyrics to this song would bamboozle Ted Rogers, <laughs> <laughs> master of the opaque verse. Mm. <laughs> you can imagine it like so. You've chosen the ripped-off knee-length skirt that was bought in by Cheryl from Box Fizz. You're standing there reading off the card. You put your rubbish in this cylindrical tub. You drive this down the road. It's two weeks' holiday in Marbella and an 18-piece set of stainless steel steak knives worth nearly £200. Now, what do you think that might be? Remember, you've already rejected Dusty Bin. You don't have to worry about that. You've rejected the car. You've rejected a holiday in Marbella and you've rejected an 18-piece set of stainless steel steak knives worth nearly £200. Now, I think, in general, lyrically, uh, it's an answer song to Shop Around by Smokey Robinson, Ooh. isn't it? Don't you think? The, if the, the, the answer song, if the question posed by Shop Around had been, can you write a song that's nowhere near as good as this? And then <laughs> sing it with about as much guts and aggression as if you were trying to stop a child crying. Um, <laughs> the answer to Smokey's question is a resounding yes. <laughs> See, what we didn't realise at the time was how much it had fuck up Eurovision chances for a good decade afterwards, you know. Mm. But I usually remember the tension of the night itself. Oh, we'll come to that later, mm. Neil. Mm. But, but yeah, you're right, man. I mean, th this is an updated brotherhood of man who actually look like they might be in their 20s. <laughs> one perky blonde, one saucy blonde, two men with lady dye hair. Come on, Europe, refuse that, you bastards. <laughs> But it's got to be said that not everyone is raving about the hot new sound of Bugs Fizz because in a review of the Song for Europe contest in the Daily Mirror, Hillary Kingsley did to write the following. 
We didn't need the viewing panels to tell us that the number nearest to the winning Eurovision thumper-thump formula was making your mind up, performed by a set of ABBA lookalikes called Bucks Fizz. <laughs> the song involved much bottom wiggling and grinning, <laughs> with the two girls losing their swirling skirts to reveal swirling minis underneath. There was also a bit of jiving, which must have gone down well in old folks' homes everywhere. <laughs> I hate to sound unpatriotic, but I hope the Continental Singers provide something better. Otherwise, the Eurovision Song Contest won't be worth the trouble. Typical Ramona. Yeah. Traitor. Yeah. Traitor. So, the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, there are very real fears at the moment as this episode's going out, chaps, that it's going to be disrupted by the National H-Block Committee, who will be forming a picket line, which is going to be mm. very uncomfortable for one of the members of Sheba Island's entry this year, whose brother is actually in the maze prison at the moment. But <sighs> it, yeah, but it raises the very real possibility of a dirty protest while Bugs Viz are on. <laughs> <laughs> is that necessary thankfully though they kept the protest outside the hall and right. uh, we were treated to what i thought was a very disco centric eurovision don't you think you know a good three years after the event yeah that's the way it goes isn't it mm. i mean because the eurovision song cost i mean i'm 12 years old and I, I should have no time by now but i remember it very clearly i remember being absolutely mm. fucking cock a hoop when we won because you know i'm english i'd seen england fail yeah so many times since 1976 yeah. that I'd given up on the football side of things. Eurovision was my one chance to see Britain winning somewhere. Yeah, it was an amazing night. Mm. Yeah, well, if you want your memory refreshed, in the interests of interest, I watched the 1981 Eurovision <laughs> Song Contest when <laughs> I could hell. have been Come on, wanking. Taylor, give it, man. Hosted by Ireland this year, as mm. Terry Wogan says, because of Johnny Logan's victory at The Hague. I knew those charges would never stick. Um, so here we are, back in the good old days of Ireland when priests were just allowed to randomly kick you in the bollocks. Um, there wasn't enough electricity to go around. Um, red lemonade and chocolate with bits of crisps in it. This is my understanding. Um, and the entries in capsule form read verbatim from my scribbled notes um, as quickly as possible. Austria, Wenn du da bist, by Marty Brem. Generic Euro ballad sung by white-suited Tucker Carlson bloke with backing vocals by a beautiful young woman in leotard, pop socks and an American football helmet. They Ooh. must have their reasons. Turkey, Don Mi Dolap, by the Modern Folk Trio. Since Ooh. there are four of them, their name is inaccurate on three separate counts. <laughs> Lead singer described by Terry as a very pretty girl. Oh. Germany, Johnny Blue, by Lena Valaitis, Olivia Newtoff John, described by <laughs> Terry as a very attractive performer. Mm. She's Lithuanian, she weren't German. Sorry, I just thought I'd insert that there. Sorry, is that a fact? Yeah, it is a fact. She was Lithuanian, she wasn't German. Yeah, there's a couple there who, who invented a ringer, as we shall see. Mm. Luxembourg, c'est peut-être pas l'Amérique by Jean-Claude Pascal, who apparently lacks the certainty of David Bowie. Uh, this song, <laughs> sung by a teak-faced, bucket-voiced 60-year-old crooner, has everything you associate with Luxembourg. Mm. Israel, Halila, 
by Habibi, spelt with a L-A-Y-L-A, so this halfway passable showbiz disco number becomes the best song ever written with a title spelt like that. <laughs> Lead singer introduced by Terry as Schlomit, who's an attractive girl. Denmark, Crawler L.A. by Tommy Seaback and Debbie Cameron. Tonight's only multiracial act, inevitably singing about the fact that they are a multiracial act. (laughs) Lady done up as a 1920s flapper and bloke done up as a prick. (laughs) Yugoslavia, Layla by Saeed Memich Vaita. Again! The long-suspected transitional form between Demis Roussos and Dr. Hook. <laughs> spelt L-E-I-L-A, but pronounced Layla. So this undistinguished nug of nothing becomes the best song ever written with a title pronounced like that. <laughs> Finland, Reggae OK oh, by yes. Ricky Saucer. The Iroy to Paul Nicholas's Uroy, dressed in a rhubarb and custard-coloured harlequin outfit with a footballer's haircut. <laughs> Author of the book Sipple Out Dare, an illustrated history of South Ostrobothnia. Uh, music for this one written by Jim Pembroke, British leader of Finnish prog rock band Wigwam. Oh. And the song that brought the accordion into the reggae sphere. Indeed. France, Humana Hum by Jean Gabilou, from the people Orson Welles would call the French. (laughs) As though in a deliberate attempt to bust stereotypes and defy preconceptions, France's entry this year is an arrogant-looking man in an open-neck suit growling a histrionic ballad into a ham mic. Spain, Isolo Tu by Bacchelli, another ringer. This man is Italian, even though he looks like he should be a bloke called Mike from Swansea. (laughs) Should be disqualified for fielding an ineligible player and also for wearing a white double-breasted jacket with grey slacks. Spain's selection of this song proves that they were still only just getting to grips with democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Netherlands, Het is in wonder by Linda Williams. This is what a really big fan of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band thinks ABBA sound like. (laughs) And considering they've stolen the synth sound and some of the notes, in one sense they'd be right. Linda Williams, introduced by Terry as a charming lady married with two children. Mm. Ireland, horoscopes by Sheba, as seen on the BBC Summertime Special, as mentioned by me, what feels like a week ago. (laughs) A spirited condemnation of astrology, which Mm. goes... It's crazy, crazy. Don't let the planets take control of our lives. Believe in the truth and not celestial lies. Wow. Which I would applaud were it not for the suspicion that this is not actually a skeptics anthem. And by the truth, they mean Christianity and mm. specifically Roman Catholicism. Right, uh, right. Throw away almanacs, signs of the zodiac when there is sense to be found. They are celestial. We are terrestrial. Let's keep our feet on the ground. <laughs> Described by Terry as three attractive Irish girls, very charming, very pretty. <laughs> Norway, Aldri e Levit by Finn Calvick. Oh, yes. Incomprehensible attempt to be charming by a clean shaven Kenny Burns. In the voting. <laughs> 
becomes the definitive nil point, the OG, mm, if right, you yeah. will. No, mate, there were loads of nil pointers in the 50s and 60s in oh, Europe. really? But in 1970, they changed the uh, the way they voted, and there was a drought of nil point until 1978, Jan Tegen, Mille et You You know that one, surely. Which one was that? He looks a bit like Iggy Pop nowadays, and he's dressed like XTC's dad, and he's doing his bit and everything, and then all of a sudden he just goes, <laughs> But no, carry on. Sorry to interrupt. United Kingdom, Making Your Mind Up by yes. Bucks Come Fee, on, go on. Introduced by Terry, an Irishman, sat in Ireland, observing a contest in which Ireland are taking part mm. against the United Kingdom as the song we've been waiting for. Mm. Yeah. Here they are, flying the flag. Truly a band to put the great back into Great Britain is a bit tatty. Oh. Jay's high harmony shredded by the demands of the dance routine and manic grin. They fucked up, didn't they? It sounds fucking horrible. Oh, yeah, it's breathless, isn't it? Wasn't Cheryl singing in a key too high? And the lead mics were given to the wrong people. Oh. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a balls up. A bit of a Gemini. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no harm done. Best bit <laughs> is when the men rip the ladies' clothes off. Um, mm. Almost done. Not long to go now. Portugal. Playback by Carlos Piau. Oh, yes. It looks like if Bruno Fernandes had a little brother who resented Bruno getting all the attention. <laughs> so he's got a blue plastic anorak, stick on dicky bow, backing band dressed as Ludo counters. They're well chock-a-block, aren't they? Yeah. But this is probably my favourite of all these songs, just because practically the whole thing is on one note, which in the context of Eurovision sounds stylistically outrageous. But if you put it in the open air, it'd die like a fish belgium samson by emily star song described by terry as one of their strongest i think for some time and i think it can fairly be described as one of the strongest belgian entries to the eurovision song contest in (laughs) one particular time period according to one man's subjective opinion (laughs) Um, lead singer described by terry as best legs in the contest uh home straight greece figari calacarino by yanis dimitris bearded youngish man singing all around a female pianist described by terry as 18 years of age like a music teacher a little bit too fond of his star pupil who Mm. may or may not be blind like lionel richie's was because she doesn't seem to notice him or look at him at any point (laughs) despite the fact that he's inhaling her um cyprus monica by island six people dressed in outfits based around the colors gray indigo lilac pink and aubergine sort of a song switzerland io sensate by peter sue and mark mustachioed sing-along with a guitarist who looks like he's on trial for his life and a balding man playing pan pipes in white shoes with a bit of a heel and finally sweden fangad e and drom by bjorn skiffs lads face it the glory days aren't coming back but <laughs> the swedes staying true to their reputation as one of the more tuned in musical nations in europe because unlike most of the entries this does at least sound like some utter shit from 1981 right <laughs> and then planksty come on and play an irish reel reels being something i find about as welcoming music as on facebook so <laughs> i fast forwarded to the voting which 
mm. as ever is some of the most austere ritualistic television ever broadcast yes. at weekend prime time. I fucking love it yeah although the actual race is pretty exciting in this one mm. but of course in the end just like in two world wars one world cup and so many swimming ice dancing and short and middle distance running events of the <laughs> 1980s god's will prevails yes as usual after a dog fight with the swiss um and slick old broadcasting dog terry talks right over the moment when bucks fizz reach the number of points they need mm. and actually win it completely spoiling the drama yeah. and at this point he still sounds sober so he's got no excuse <laughs> <laughs> I seem to recall the last vote's quite shocking, isn't it? Because it, it hinges on it. It's like Switzerland yeah. give Germany zero and they give us eight in the penultimate vote. Yeah, yeah. And that's what swings it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm grateful that I thought. Those Swiss bear a grudge, man. <laughs> or something. Like, where's that famous neutrality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah it, was, it was a very tense night. Yeah, they should have given 12 points to everyone <laughs> Switzerland should have done. So, yes, the golden year of Bucks Fizz. But let's not forget, chaps, that with success comes problems, as they're going to soon discover. Article in the state from a few weeks from now Bucks Fizz this year's Eurovision winners can look forward to a date list which includes engagements at the London Palladium Bailey's Club Watford and the Night Out Birmingham but the group's formation means that there are now two Bucks Fizz acts working the circuit the other Bucks Fizz comprises three Cambridge graduates who perform a camp Noel Coward style show and are managed by Stephen Hayter, owner of London's Embassy Club. They were formed 18 months ago, but the Eurovision lineup founded earlier this year has already registered the name. So fuck off, David Van Day. <laughs> Hayter claimed he was not worried. Our group cannot say hello in three languages, and we have no intention of teaching. Teaching them, he commented. Well, they must be right, thick bunch of cunts. I can fucking do that. Yeah, it's more than three languages where it's just hello. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but sadly for Taylor and his ilk, the gig at the night out didn't happen because they had to pull out to make a Top of the Pops appearance. So they were replaced by the Brotherhood of Man. Oh, fuck Ooh. me. That's, that's sad. So, yeah, to be fair, the, the pioneers, the first of the shabbers, <laughs> they must be, right? Because people think of Bucks Fizz as being a, a, a shabber, but there was a lot of it about at this time, wasn't there? The Doolies oh, yes. had gone shabber, um, mm-hmm. Tight Fit were about to come roaring in with Fantasy Island. Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls. After Barry and Yvonne left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more disturbingly, chaps, is this other article in the stage from September. Headline, Bucks Fizz Con Man Escapes with Cash. <gasps> Police are looking for a blonde con man who escaped with cash from two... I know who you're thinking of immediately. <laughs> who escaped with cash from two theatre box officers by passing himself off as a well-known pop singer. <laughs> the cheeky imposter claimed that he was Mike Nolan of Bucks Fizz and oh. even came equipped with a stack of records by the group. <laughs> Small sums of money, 
£50 in one case, £18 in another, went missing from two Blackpool theatres shortly after his visit. In both cases, he gained admittance to the box office by saying that he wanted to telephone the theatre manager and discuss the possibility of Bucks Fizz staging a charity concert. And police are warning that he could strike again. So, touch one eye, touch other eye. Keep them peeled. <laughs> Last scene, speeding away in a burger van. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bucks Fizz well on their way to success and glory. And, you know, already, if you want a measure of how well this song's going to do, I remember it already being parodied in the playground as you got to shove it up <laughs> and then you got to <laughs> twist it round. Uh-huh. It's a nailed uncertainty, man. Straight to the bookmakers, everyone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sealer quality, that, isn't it? I mean, I, I seem mm. to recall similar things. Yeah, I mean, there, there was not an inevitability about it, their success. It could have just... They could have just disappeared, didn't they? But, I mean... Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Given the songs that they were given, they were all right. I mean, what's love got to do with it was initially offered to Booksfizz, wasn't it? Um, God, rec- yeah. Recorded a demo. I don't think it actually appeared on an album, did it? But um, No. Yeah. You really got to twist it round. Yeah, I know. Is that, I know. Is this like, it, it's quite sort of forward thinking because it's really it, it centres uh, sex toy use. Yes, than, predates uh, the rabbit. Yeah, rather than PIV. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to ask, how do you think making your mind up would have got on in this year's Eurovision, chaps? Oh, yeah. It's a very catchy number, man. It is. I, I think it's it's ageless, and it would have done pretty damn good. Mm. Um, they are for white heterosexual uh, women and men, so that might have counted against them. But, um, you know. Because it's not really the Eurovision Song Contest anymore, is it? It's a Eurovision Emotional Gut Punch Contest. Yeah. And I fear that the song and the routine wouldn't have cut it. Uh. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think if Bucksfizz were doing it in the last Eurovision Song Contest, it would have to involve Cheryl and Jay ripping off Mike and Bobby's trousers and they waving their penises about because that would pass muster with the woke snowflakes of today. <laughs> what, with the Ukrainian flag painted on their balls or yes. something? Yeah. Yes, yeah. definitely, yeah. 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 Or they, <laughs> yeah. they could have had uh, leotards made up for the girls with pictures of viscera on it and worn that Mm. under their clothes so they could do that line and if you want to see even more and rip the front off them so it all looked like organs and a rib cage and stuff Mm. it would have worked quite well or they could have hired smaller versions of cheryl baker and jay aston and then Mm. when it got to that bit rip their whole bodies away to reveal the miniature versions inside so if you want to see some less (laughs) (laughs) did you watch it this year no no No, i don't bother anymore because it's all too knowing it's all too winky nudge i mean the fact that it's become gay christmas is fucking brilliant but i miss the seriousness of it you know what i mean Yeah. yeah it's not for us anymore no basically yeah, which is fine oh, yeah, yeah yeah i mean i'm guessing that previous on chart music we've we've acknowledged cheryl baker's huge part in kickstarting Britpop. what well you know blur's first tv appearance go on we was doing there's no other way on sunday morning cooking show eggs and baker really um, right yeah a key moment in the Britpop history which is unacknowledged so thank you cheryl it would have been funny <laughs> if jay had had a program where she'd been the first people to put oasis on tv yeah <laughs> <laughs> It could have been set in Spain called Aston's Villa. 
<laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Shit on the villa, man. So the following week, making your mind up, smashed into the charts at 24, then soared 19 places to number five. On the verge of the contest, it tucked in at number two. And after edging out West Germany by four points to win Eurovision for the UK for the first time since 1976, it deposed Comrade Shaker and stayed at number one for three weeks, giving way to stand and deliver by Adam and the Ants. It's also got to number one in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Ireland, Israel and the Netherlands, selling over four million copies worldwide and finishing the year as the seventh biggest selling single of 1981. It's also spawned not one but three immediate cover versions, Mima Valve Loco by Parachis, the mini pops of Barcelona, My Rock and Roll Cowboy by Maggie May, the Deirdre Barlow of German Schlager who was known as the Mad Hen, and it's only a wind-up by Brown Ale, a collective led by Stephanie De Sykes. Ooh, Stephanie De Sykes, <laughs> who refused permission to release it by the co-owner of the publishing rights. Billy Lore, Lulu, us brother. <laughs> the follow-up piece of the action got to number twelve in June, and one of those nights only got to number twenty for two weeks in September. But in November, they closed out the year by releasing Land of Make Believe, which took eight weeks to nimbly scale the charts and got to number one for two weeks in January of 1982 while the group was still on £30 a week their weekly stipend from the record company until the royalties started to kick in but they did receive an estimated 1,000 bottles of champagne during their many personal appearances and a car dealer gave them a mini metro each (laughs) (laughs) Stephen Fisher, the Pete Best of Bucks Fizz finally got his place in the sun when he teamed up with his girlfriend Sally Ann Triplett as Bardo who represented the UK in the 1982 Eurovision Song Contest and took their song one step further to number two and 17 years later when the eggs laid by the parasitic wasp of Bucks Fizz began to hatch Bucks Fizz not yet David Van Day's Bucks Fizz, released Making Your Mind Up 98, featuring Van Day, Mike Nolan and some birds. But despite the Europop update, Paul Lavers appearing in the video <laughs> and a bit where the girls ripped open their tops to reveal their wonderbrought up jubblage, it only got to number 84 in May of that year. According to Van Day in that incredible trouble at the top episode, quote... Although we didn't do the skirt ripping routine, we did this 90s thing. I felt we were in the boob age. We came up with this idea where the girls would rip their tops off and they would have skimpy bras on underneath, and I thought it was a nice thing to move it on. Mm. I mean, at least the girls did the Velcro ripping bit themselves, which is extremely feminist of David Van Day. It's such a fantastic thing, that isn't it? That that trouble mm. at the top thing. Oh my yeah, God. We've got to cover it one day in <laughs> full. Obviously, it's very difficult to like David Van Day, but how mm. dull would Pop be without him? Yes, and without moments yeah. like that, and without the coach trip bit. You know, he's got. Oh, that was glorious! <laughs> that was amazing. People were moaning on in the, the last Eurovision that Sonia pitched up to make a special appearance, and it's like, no, 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 no. Hang on a minute. Say what you like for Sonia. You go and look at her 
battling with David Van Day in that mm. reborn in the USA and then come back to me and then go and apologise to Sonia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's fucking brilliant in she, that. She, yeah, really upped her in my estimation, that. Yeah, definitely. And before we go, chaps, I do need to ask... How did you feel when you found out the other week about the announcement of Teresa Bazaar's dollar? <laughs> did you punch the air like I did? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes, I did. Especially when you found out that she'd actually got an ex-member of the Fizz in to replace <laughs> David Van Day. Oh, my God. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> if she'd have got Bobby G and I think the universe would have collapsed yeah. in on itself. It would have, just, would have been a perfect end to human existence. <laughs> Ooh, I think that's enough fizzy pop excitement for one day pop craze youngsters. So before we go, let me remind you that if you want this and all other episodes in full without adverts and whatnot, get your arse over to patreon.com slash chart music now and put a jingle in our G-strings. Also, like every other episode, there's a huge video playlist featuring everything we've seen and everything we've talked about at youtube.com slash chart music t-o-t-p oh and one last call for our live show on september the 16th at king's cross kingsplace.co.uk anyway pop craze youngsters final part tomorrow so until then stay pop crazed (laughs) chart music